They say being a parent is a full-time job, but I already have one of those. Luckily, I use Instacart to help me order everything I need while I'm stuck in meetings all day. So while Instacart is helping me get groceries, snacks for school lunches, and something for at-home happy hour, I get more time back to juggle my day job and my mom job. Save time by downloading the Instacart app or visit instacart.com to get $20 off your first order using the code INGREDIENTS20. Offer valid for a limited time. Minimum order $35. Delivery subject to availability. Additional terms apply. So hello and welcome to China Econ Talk. I'm here today with Jonathan Wetzel, McKinsey's MGI director and a senior partner in the Shanghai office. He leads research on China, Asia, and global economic and business trends. Uh, what uh, what his work does helps cities and regions create sustainable growth and supports the transformation of Chinese companies into global leaders. Today we're here to talk about his recent report titled "A Chinese Digital Economy." First, uh, Jonathan, thanks so much and welcome to the show. Thank you, Jordan. So before we jump into uh, this topic, if we could just get a little bit of your China story. So what uh, first brought you here and uh, and kept you in the Middle Kingdom? Um, opportunity uh, for both. <laughs> that uh, back in the eighties, uh, China was a strange foreign place for people outside of China. Uh, that uh, no one had been there for thirty years, and uh, it was unclear what the opportunities might be. I for uh, personal reasons had always been interested in China. My father was actually born in Shanghai, uh, and so I grew up speaking some Chinese and knowing something about the culture. Uh, in school, I started to learn more about China, and once uh, once that became uh, I, once I got to know it a bit, I realized there was a massive opportunity. Uh, so I came and uh, was part of uh, my firm's uh, initial setup, and uh, never found a reason to leave, as the opportunities just kept. Get kept getting bigger and bigger. So, if you could just sort of very quickly generalize how um, uh, you know how how your experience working with Chinese firms has changed over time. Well, initially, we didn't really work with Chinese firms because there really weren't any Chinese firms. Sure, so the whole concept of management is relatively new to China. Um, 35, 40 years ago, there weren't such things as companies. You had uh, assets, but you didn't really have management. Um, so, you know, what's obviously happened over the last uh, 40 years is China has kind of got the concept of management and business and enterprise. And uh, now the majority of our work is uh, with private Chinese enterprises uh, who are facing many of the similar challenges as, uh, as their counterparts anywhere in the world. Um, but perhaps, you know, their context is, uh, is very Chinese. It must have been a remarkable arc to, uh, to get to see firsthand. Yeah, it was, uh, it's been a great ride, um, because essentially it's been the story of how hundreds of millions of people have sort of you know, jumped into the sea and sort of figured out how to, uh, uh, become entrepreneurial and how to help themselves, uh, become richer. And, uh, and with that, you know, the economy and the society has become much more complex and, uh, and more interesting. Sure. Are there any, um, you know, particular years you thought, um, over this, uh, over this career you've had in China that uh, really stuck out to you as, as important or meaningful or uh, represented future changes to come? 1991. Um, sure. Mostly because it was two years after 1989. Uh, and it took about a year or two for business to recover uh, from what was this initial shock about you know, China went through its first post-reform cycle, a coincident with Tiananmen. Uh, and so two years later, business came back. So it was sort of a vote of confidence, if you will, for the for the Chinese economy and the reform process. So that was that was a pretty big pretty big year, all things considered. And then, of course, there have been other big years along the way, notably 
China's gone through at least two of those cycles. There was that one, and there was the one following it with uh, SOE uh, adjustments and reform. Uh, and again, another another transition and another vote of confidence in the early 2000s in the Chinese economy. Sure. So those are. I mean, China has its cycles, <laughs> and uh, we we may be seeing one now. Um, so. Uh, coming to your report, uh, the first part of it focuses a lot on innovation. You know, um, the, the the narrative in the West that China um, uh, has nothing to contribute in terms of uh, new technology and new business models has sort of fallen by the wayside. But if you could just talk about uh, briefly the state of play and and the most interesting players you think pushing uh, pushing Chinese innovation today. Yeah, I mean, I think it's important to start by defining our terms and what do we mean by innovation. And so for us, it's a a change in a product or service that creates commercial value. Sure. Uh, so it's not invention per se, uh, because that without commercial value is not particularly uh, meaningful, uh, nor is it, of course, just copying. So it's something else that we've actually done differently. And we think that there are at least four different kinds of uh, innovation. There's consumer innovation, where you're changing something to respond to the marketplace. There's process innovation, where you change something in the factory. Uh, there's engineering in- innovation, which is about your supply chain and working together with different different players. And of course, there's research innovation, where you're doing something in a lab and you ultimately take it take it forward into the into the marketplace. In each of those, China has a profile, and it's I think we we can say that China's strongest at consumer innovation uh, and process innovation. It has a mixed record in engineering innovation, and it's just getting started in research innovation. Uh, but in each of these, there are promising examples of uh, companies that have really made a difference in uh, areas where you would say China can potentially be a world leader. Sure. So one third of the world's global unicorns, uh, one of the largest uh, VC, uh, you know, there's more, there's a, a shocking amount of VC money being spent uh, in Beijing and around the rest of the country. It really is um, remarkable what this uh, economy has been up to over the past uh 10 years. Yeah, of course. And I think that comes with, first of all, China basically represents a massive demand side shock to the world economy. Trillions of dollars of uh, of savings of the Chinese people generated out of productivity growth that's been double digit for the last 30 years. You know, now all of a sudden the world's waking up to this, this, this new factor that creates, you know, massive shifts in revenue pools across industries as well as innovation uh, and development of new industries. So. Maybe the, the digital story for China is sort of the logical outcome of what has been a very rapid catch up along multiple disciplines and dimensions, uh, financial, uh, industrial, uh, and uh, academic and educational. So all of these dimensions, China's been progressing at double digit rates from a relatively low base. Uh, but now when China shows up, of course, then it's a big, it's a big, big deal. Sure. So what would you say to the, uh, those who would say that the only reason China has been able to create, uh, these giant companies is because they've basically locked out, um, the Western competitors who are actually more productive and more innovative? I, I think that there's a certain amount of truth to the fact that there are barriers. I mean, clearly that there are some industries and some segments where, uh, there's limits on comp- competition. What China has going for it is that it has such a robust, large domestic market is that domestic competition is often the thing that drives the innovation. Uh, and, it, you know, we usually say it takes two Chinese players to make a price war. Uh, so that there's, there's, there's intense competition at every step of every value chain. And in many of these cases, when you look at it, you know, the Chinese versus foreign competitor, yeah, the regulatory barrier came in, but actually the, the game was over before that. Sure. Uh, so that, you know, I would, you know, I think there's, 
And finally, uh, it was ever thus. Uh, it's very difficult to find a market in the world where you don't have regulatory barriers to competition. Sure. Um, my favorite uh, analogy is uh, one of Santi. You hear every once in a while the, the three-body problem where people talk about the uh, China startup scene as a black forest or, or as a dark forest in which um, uh, in which the, the competition is so fierce that you always have to be scared of being noticed because um, one of the uh, BATs will come to in a second. We'll just zap and wipe you off the face of the earth unless they find you worthy of investment. Mm-hmm. So, um, coming to, coming to, uh, BATs, if you could walk us quickly through, um, the three, uh, the three dominant players, uh, in the tech world over the past, uh, over the past 10 years and, um, whether or not you think, or let, let's just do that. So if you could introduce, uh, to our audience, uh, that. Well, um, I'm not going to be able to talk about the companies specifically, but what I can say a couple things. First of all, that this, uh, and we really should say BATJ at this point, sure. um, uh, is an ecosystem that is, you know, uh, unprecedentedly influential in, uh, in its digital space. I mean, back in, uh, the 90 or the 2000s, I think the, the BAT was about 5% of venture capital funding uh, in China, similar to the role that FANG, uh, Facebook, Amazon, Netflix, Google, uh, had in the U.S. Ten years later, uh, BAT is now 30 or 40 percent of the venture capital funding in, in China, and FANG is still back down in the 5 or 6 percent range. Sure. So clearly, uh, this group of companies is now having a, a massive influence, and even more impressively, of course, is the if you look at the top 50 startups, you know, a good 40% of them are either directly funded, invested in, or, or run by alumni of, uh, BAT. So. Could you talk a little bit about the, um, the, the opportunities and the drawbacks of having such a, uh, such dominant players in the market? Well, yeah, it's a real question of what do we mean by dominant? Because, I mean, at the same time, venture capital funding has gone from two trillion to two billion, some, some, um, to 30 billion. I think it's probably, I'm off by a couple of zeros in there. Sure. Uh, and, uh, so, I mean, it's obviously been an explosion of funding here and, and no shortage of startups. I mean, it's one third of the, of the world's unicorns. So their uh, influence has been essentially to create platforms, platforms that these other startups are using. Now, of course, they extract, you know, their rent for the, for access to those platforms. Sure. Uh, but they're nonetheless a way of saying instantly, well, if you have a better mousetrap, I will introduce it to a hundred million people. Uh, and, and that's not something that any, other ecosystem can do. Right? So they have a unique capacity to get market access and get market data and to, to use that data to help people monetize their new development, their app, uh, you know, much the, that much faster. So one of the big uh, opportunities for Chinese uh, startups and, and these venture firms, as opposed to more developed economies, is the, you know, Almost shocking inefficient, not shocking inefficiencies, but the, the large inefficiencies that are still, um, uh, uh, around in, in such a giant economy. So if you could speak a little bit to that and, uh, how these companies are looking at, 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 uh, fixing these problems for consumers and businesses. Right. Well, as anybody who has spent any time in a Chinese bank, travel agency, you know, department store, uh, I can attest, I mean, things are, things could be better. Sure. Uh, the productivity is relatively low, service is relatively poor. Uh, so, you know, in that context, uh, online represents an extremely viable and attractive alternative. As a result, you have this double-digit growth and 40% of the world's e-commerce and so forth, 11, 11x the U.S.'s version of mobile payments. So all of that is to say, you know, online grows to some extent because offline is so horrible. 
but uh, that said, what we're really seeing, as, as our friends at Ollie would say, and I can say this, is that you know, a, a omni-channel or a unichannel where there is no, there is a seamless blending of online and offline because everybody uses both. You know, nobody, there's very few people who have a, live a purely online world or at this stage a purely offline world. That there's a there's an interconnect of these things. So essentially, digital allows us to make better choices and makes better, and it also allows us to deliver better products and services. And any company which doesn't have a digital capacity, uh, when it's not a digital strategy, it's just an integration of digital, is at a competitive disadvantage. Could you talk just on a personal note about which headaches you think have been alleviated for you living in China over these years and which still bug you and are waiting for, uh, are waiting for good solutions? I mean, I, I mean, I think obviously share bikes and, you know, the, the whole Q, QR codes have been an enormous revolution of this payment mechanism. And so that has enabled, uh, I mean, QR codes enabling things like share bikes. Sure. Uh, you know, it just well, makes exercise possible. Sure. <laughs> in a way which it might not have been otherwise. And so you would, would like to have the 10 or 15 minutes a day to sit down and cycle and sort of see the world in a different way. And, you know, that, that was, that's been enabled by technology. Now, still finding a decent dry cleaner. Now, that's, that appears to be a bottleneck that I haven't been able to solve yet. So I'm looking forward to the sharing economy kind of getting to that point. <laughs> all right. Well, all those, uh, all those startup, potential startup founders out there, listen, uh, <laughs> listen in. Um, so another thing you focus on in this, uh, in this, uh, piece is the role of the, uh, role of the government. You talk about how it is, um, you know, uh, like it's, uh, benevolent in action, um, whether that's designed or just given that a, a bureaucracy as large as trying to move slowly, as well as it's, um, as well as the almost shocking amount of investment it's putting into a number of these fields. So first, maybe if you could talk about, um, the regulatory impact or lack of, lack thereof that, um, uh, the government has shown in these, uh, sectors. Well, I think, it, I mean, there's, there's two things going on here. One is the government has a keen appreciation for the role of the consumer, uh, going forward. And I think that, that battle has been well and truly, uh, won in the mind of the government that, you know, the driving force of the economy will be the consumer. And so we need to support the consumer. Uh, so anything the consumer wants, the government is not likely to stand in the consumer's way. Uh, and as a result, digital, which has been something that again has been delivering something the consumer wants, has been given a pretty free reign. Sure. Uh, so it took 10 or 11 years before online banking became regulated as banking. Uh, this is an example. And there are many other examples of products and services, you know, for example, uh, e-hailing. I mean, this was not completely unregulated. And same, same for the share bikes. And so it's, uh, it only gets regulated at the point where the consumer starts to complain about something. Yeah. You know, whether it's surge pricing or some fraud or something like that. Mm -hmm. Then the government will step in. It won't actually regulate the service. But it will regulate the consequence and see yep. what is the problem. We'll, we'll see what happens we'll, with kindergartens in the next uh, year or two. Well, kindergartens got regulated after a while yeah. uh, because of uh, safety and security. That was mainly it. And so when people were starting to worry about physical issues. So it was the food that was being served and it was the quality of the playground equipment. That's, that was the stuff that got regulated, not actually your ability to open a school or not. Sure. Uh, so the uh, – yeah, I, I think that we we're going to see a, a – um, you know, and available, you know, more complexity in this probably, you know, and more capacity from the regulator to do stuff. We've called it benign neglect. Other people might say watchful waiting. You know, essentially, you know, they're, they're willing to see the product or service in the marketplace and then, you know, adapt, uh, you know, to figure out what's the, what's the appropriate level of intervention or license to, uh, to, 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 to inspect it. Sure. And, and now turning to the government spending in these fields, um, right. pushing, uh, uh, to have China be an AI leader or a solar leader. Is this wasteful? Is it useful? Does it matter if it's wasteful? 
Well, as always, the Chinese government is pretty good at sending out setting out the goalposts and saying this is where we want to go with this. But then, if you peel the onion, sort of see how much money is associated with, so you know, surprisingly little. Uh, the Chinese you know, government spending is relatively modest on these types of projects. Uh, now, there are two kinds of government projects. There are the government projects that get driven by government directly through national entities like Strong Smart Grid or High Speed Rail. And I think those are things that almost are set up to pay for themselves. Uh, through the through these utilities in sure. State Grid or this uh, rail corporation, um, and then there are the projects which they basically say, well, we'd like to get there, and we encourage all of you guys down at the provincial and, and local level to to support that. And then you get lots of provinces and cities kind of going out there and sort of trying to look good and sort of spend money on accelerators or you know automate some piece of their government equipment. End of the day, all of that sort of is in this uh, is is incremental capital spend at a local level, uh, which essentially is not that not that much. Sure. Uh, what what this does do is sort of help people figure out what's what the government wants to have happen, and from the private sector's point of view, then they try to figure out how they're going to make that happen. Yeah. As they they believe and rightfully so that there are ways the government can incentivize them if they come up with a commercially viable scheme. Yeah. Uh, the financial incentives are typically dr- uh, done at the local level, everything from free land to a little bit of support on your lot and your loans to access to talent and all these things can can and are done at the local level for both I should say local and foreign companies. <laughs> sure. Um so turning now to uh, the global impact of these firms, um, we see, uh, you know, more and more uh, Chinese Chinese companies expanding abroad from Mobike to DGI to, you know, Alibaba has been out this game for a long time now. So I'm curious uh, what you think in particular uh, these uh, these companies are just to generalize are, are strong at and, and what what challenges will they face going forward in terms of localizing their products and understanding different markets? Well, I'd say the number one thing they're strong at is they're willing to try. <laughs> they're very entrepreneurial. And that contrasts perhaps to previous generations of globalizers from Korea or Japan, which perhaps also because their context was different. Back then, you didn't have so many opportunities to buy things. It wasn't, wasn't really a private equity industry. Mm. And there were more barriers and there weren't as many targets. So current Chinese enterprises are more willing to acquire. They're more willing to try to, try to go on their own to do something, uh, do something in, in parallel, both organic and inorganic. Um, but, you know, that's, 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 that's their, I think, competitive advantage in many cases. Beyond that, I mean, yeah, I mean, Chinese companies have grown up in China, so they have this feel for an emerging market requirement. So if you go look at Africa or the Middle East or even India, you start to see products and services in a business model, which is fit for purpose more for an emerging market context, particularly an emerging market urban consumer context. Um, you know, beyond that, I mean, I think they're, you know, they're climbing the ladder of value added like every other country has in the, in, in, in the past. And so Japan used to be, you know, the cheap, cheap products that break quickly and so it becomes a hallmark of quality. Chinese companies need to go down that, uh, that path as well. Sure. Know, some of them are, are earlier than others. I would say if you look at the textile sector, for example, you know, you'll see that, you know, really high value products coming out of China right now and low value products being outsourced to Bangladesh and Cambodia. Mm. So uh, overall, this is a very optimistic thesis. I'm curious if you could walk us through some potential risks um, that may, uh, you know, hamper uh, Chinese firms taking over the world. Well, I don't think they're, they're going to take or over the world. T- take or, or, or hamper the innovation, hamper the, um, yeah, uh, the no, continued I, expansion no, I, I and development. Think this is, uh, you know, I, I, in many ways, I would argue China's done the hard bit. I mean, the hard bit is to double-digit growth for 30 years. Sure. Yeah, not too many economies have done that. And that's partly because of starting point. It's a really low starting point. But there are not too many economies have gotten their act together at such a low starting point to sustain 30 years of growth either. Sure. Typically, people fail. 
so that now it's about sustaining and rejuvenating and renewing the model. And innovation is what you do once you have the capacity to do it. And basically, you need you need three things to do innovation. You need market, you need companies, you need regulators. Uh, who are a system, if you will. Sure. So China has a market, China has a companies, China has a system. Uh, and so the simple fact is China is going to spend more on innovation than any other country in the world. The way in which it innovates is not so bad. You maybe say some some strengths and weaknesses. Uh, and it's going to be global innovation. Uh, if you go to any research lab in China, you will find people who have been educated everywhere in the world. Sure. If they don't come, even if you know they may come from other places in the world. So it's a uniquely global environment. So that all that says to me is that yeah, why wouldn't you expect this? This would just be natural. It's sort of a consequence or an outcome. But either you buy the Chinese economy growing, in which case you buy Chinese innovation, or you think it's going to fail. And so your bet on innovation is really just a bet on the Chinese economy and its ability to sustain growth. Sure. So it's a more it's a more macro question in the end, because as long as the the, the macro uh, factors are working out, then these companies are going to keep doing what they're they've already proven right. themselves able Technology to do. Technology and innovation follows market. I sure. Mean, and uh, and yeah, I don't think it's going to be a uniformly successful model. I think we should expect to see a number of flameouts. I can say blue go go because it just failed. Sure. Uh, but you know, sure. I mean, as I said, it takes two Chinese companies to make a price war, and when you get 100 percent overcapacity, you're going to see some failures, but that's called capitalism. Sure. Awesome. Well, 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 thanks for that. So before we wrap up, if you could just uh, maybe recommend uh, two books for folks interested in this topic and then one about anything related to China or, or one topic that you think has not been properly covered um, given, the, given the appropriate book length treatment. Wow. Uh, well, I mean, there's too many things to recommend. I, I, I've, I've puzzled, but uh, I, I would say, you know, read MGI. <laughs> I mean, seriously, McKinsey, McKinsey Global Institute, it's got it's probably the best sort of set of commercially available uh, think tank reports. But if you want a book, uh, then, you know, I, uh, I, I really, uh, I mean, my favorite author is Jonathan Spence. Sure. And as a history, a historian of China, so someone who has, has the view of centuries around what's happened in China. I like I like everything he's ever written, from uh, the question of who to uh, memory palace of Matteo Ricci. Absolutely. Uh, the uh, as far as a book that hasn't been written uh, and that should be, yeah, I think there's there is a story to be told about Chinese uh, innovation and the, the the challenges of reintegrating into Chinese society. Uh, and how people who come back from outside get get to be inside, mm. and uh, you know what really drove that sort of how do they how did they experience their initial rejections? Uh, what drove them to go outside? How did they think that that was even possible to make a round trip? Sure. Uh, did they think it was possible? Was it all happenstance? I think that would be I think that would give a lot of encouragement to many people in China uh, that to show the diversity of paths. Sure. <laughs> Great. Well, thank you so much for this. My pleasure. Thanks, Ben.